0: good evening everyone welcome to the people's school of marxism leninist studies the day's date is august 3rd 2023 very good to see everyone here so yes today we will be discussing the other october revolutions russia's revolution was important but was not the only one and in fact um the areas adjacent to russia that being bielorussia transcaucasia ukraine kazakhstan all had their own events that happened around the time of the october revolution so tonight the u.s friends of the soviet people which is a sister affiliation of the school of marxism leninism studies will be giving a class on the other october revolutions Okay. So for the class today we'll be doing the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, the Kazakhstan Soviet Socialist Republic, the Transcaucasian or Soviet Federative Soviet Republic and the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. We will be giving a little lecture on each section given by the people who wrote them and then we will break for discussions. So, you can take it away.
1: Thank you. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? Okay, so um, most of the sources that, or as a group, got uh, or that we used for this presentation um, are two books. We use Soviet, but not Russian, and People of the USSR um, for a lot of the source material. And I wanted to start this out, and the reason why I put similar but different, uh, kind of as a as a tagline, is because you know in many ways Belarusians were similar to Russians, but they had uh, different and diverse cultures, apart from each other, respectively, um, and there were just a lot of other things that that you know they had many similarities, but they were also uh, very different in many ways. And I'm hoping that we can uh, shed some light on that tonight. Uh, so, next slide, please. So, to start off, the uh, there was a kind of a nickname coined, um, and the nickname for the Belarusians was White Russians. Now, this as had said on Tuesday night, "That isn't meant to be. It's not meant to be like a like a racial joke, uh, or or meant to be disparaging in any way. Um, that is just what they were known uh, known as in the area. Um, and so, Belarusia was a country that bordered Russia into the northwest and had a diverse cultural makeup of Jewish and Russian backgrounds. A quote from the book Soviet but not Russian." Ah, uh, Belarusia is to Russia as Portugal is to Spain. Next door on the west, smaller, with similar but diverse cultures. Uh, next slide, please. And so, this we're we're talking about. Uh, this is another phrase that was coined when we're talking about Belarusia. It was, it was colonials of semi-colonials, and just referred to historically, uh, kind of what countries or what kingdoms had. Had control over the area. Um, so, Belarusians were mostly peasants under Polish landowners who were also under Russian rule until the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and they had never developed enough to become an empire in history. And because of that, they were a part of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth until 1795. So, they have a very long history of just basically being under the thumb of various countries and various rulers. Um, Again, until the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, Next slide, please. Uh, With this, another kind of nickname for the Belarusians was the People of the Marshes. So as far as the geography of the area, uh, Belarusia was similar to the size of Minnesota, which is about 90,000 square miles. The meteoric makeup of the area was very humid, frequent heavy rain, and it was damp. Uh, the marshes would often flood from the rain and cover one-fifth of the entire territory. Uh, and many of the peasants lived in the marshy land since the nobles had taken the more favorable land for themselves. Uh, next slide. And kind of continuing on that same point, uh, we have uh, another quote here. And uh, so it says, During spring floods, they go from island to island in canoes driven by sail or paddle or pulled across shallows by long-horned oxen. In summer, they cannot travel at all. Only when winter freezes, the marshes is their firm travel over the snow. Um, and another point on the religious makeup of Belarusians, um, they mostly consisted of Orthodox Christians. Um, and in that is even going back to when the Lithuanian king had stated in 1569 um, when they had, uh, upon the acquisition of Poland, that citizens would embrace Roman Catholicism. So even through all of that, um, they still hung on to and they still uh, were primarily Orthodox Christians. Uh, next slide, please. And now we're moving on to the, uh, the Soviet Socialist Republic, so the 20th century um, and kind of their achievements that they had. On November 7th, 1917, uh, the working men in Minsk created a Soviet government for white Russia. Um, it wasn't until January 1st, 1919 that they became a separate republic after reclaiming the land from driving Germany out. Uh, the land in possession uh, of peasants doubled from 15 million acres to 35 million acres after they had expropriated the land from the czars and the nobles. Um, and by 1937, the area of cultivated land grew to 10 million which, was, uh, which would double the harvest yield uh, that they would have annually. And next slide, please. And finally, uh, some long-standing Soviet advancements that they had under the, the Socialist Republic. Um, under the leadership, uh, white Russia was able to utilize the swamps to power the country. Uh, by 1939, the country was producing 500,000 kilowatt hours of energy Um, that was due to hydroelectricity, that they were able to do that. Uh, White Russia had a national library of around 2 million volumes available to all citizens. Uh, They also had a hospital town, which was outside of uh, Minsk, which provided care to all of the rural districts of the country. Uh, And finally, they had a a law in the country as well that promoting or advocating for race discrimination was a punishable crime, and that was a pretty common law um kind of throughout the ussr as well uh so that is it on bella Russia.
0: right thank you comrade um so now we will go into discussion if you have a question please use the ha- raised hand function um at the bottom of the screens and i believe if you're on a telephone it's pound nine i believe looks like some people already have it um if you don't get to you immediately don't worry keep your hand up and we'll take one by one So is this the same thing as, or same geographic area and
2: nationality as modern day Belarus? And if so, why did
3: they change the name?
0: Thank you for the question. Um, Okay. So yes, Bialyusia is basically the modern day state of Belarus. Um, The map you saw on the screen there was a little shortened during the 1920s because Poland had taken that land with the territory of the, that territory with the Treaty of Riga. Um, But as to the name, that area has been known as many different names like Belarusia, Belarusia, White Ruthenia, Belarus. Um, There's different debates on where exactly the names came from and how, but yes, that does refer to the same land. Uh, For the next hand, the number, I think, uh, to my understanding, uh, um, uh,
4: Belarus now Belarus, and at the time when it was with the Soviet Union, it was called uh, Belarusia, and including Ukraine on uh, a part of the Soviet Union. What is the what What happened? There is a slight change of the name of the country. Belarus now, and Belarusia when it was with the Soviet Union. So. Uh, I would like to find out if there is any information as to why the change uh, took place.
0: Thank you for that question, Cumber.
5: Conver- yeah, sorry, if it's not related to uh, Belarus, USSR exactly, but uh, coming from the West, can anybody give me a left or Marxist synopsis on Belarus itself? Because everyone say Lukashenko is a dictator, but I also hear from the left that it's also super Soviet. Can somebody clarify? how left they are today or if if what's true and what's not true and what's um propaganda sorry if that's off topic thank you
0: no thank you for your question um so to my knowledge um lukashenko was the head of the communist party of belarus um there is debate that he saw kind of where the winds were blowing and decided you know um let's make a social democracy party um say what you want about lukashenko i'm personally not too knowledgeable on his governance or the goings-on but he does he is supported by the belarusian communist party um and the majority in government so other than that i do not honestly have any other modern information on the subject
6: yeah okay number one i was in Minsk in 76 um actually twice Minsk is the capital city. It was destroyed, I would say 98% in World War II. Only a cathedral and one other building were left standing by the Germans. scorched Earth policy and the bombings, etc. The whole city was rebuilt with slabs of concrete. It's a very gray looking city. Very, very little pastel colors like you have in Leningrad, very different. Um, My own personal view, it was the ugliest city I've seen in the Soviet Union that was there. But you have to understand it was totally destroyed. They had to get houses, roofs, food on the table, uh, shelter from the winter. So they concentrate on getting everything built quickly. As to um, Lushenko's regime, it has a lot of Soviet um, paraphernalia, a lot. Um, even the logo, it looks like a Soviet logo, uh, with the wheat and all that stuff. So it's very, very similar. Um, he has been attacked as the last, the last Soviet, uh, uh, nostalgia in, in Europe. And, and that's been by the bourgeoisie. My answer is if the bourgeoisie are going on this thing to attack him, he must be doing something positive. Because um, they don't attack, they only, you know, they love Nazis, as Zelensky and Europeans, they love that. Um, so, yeah, that's what I would suggest, that um, he's a positive element, a very positive element. And if he goes, he'll be replaced by a pro-Western, pro, much more pro-capitalist also private industry in Belarus was nowhere near privatized as it was in Russia or the Ukraine or the other Soviet
0: republics. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo.
7: Hi, everyone. Um, So I just wanted to say, I'm not certain of this answer, but this might be something to do with it. But I know that the the Russian empire had always referred to the region of Belarusia, Belarusia, and then Russia itself, like greater Russia was Belikorussia and then Ukraine was considered like Malorussia. So maybe the Soviets changed the name to kind of get away from that, um, that Russian nationalist idea. But what I wanted to say about Belarus itself uh, and I think it's very distinct in Ukraine because the Ukrainian identity, the Ukrainian nationality was created by the Austro-Hungarian Empire um, to the Ukrainian, at that time, uh, aristocracy and a little bit of the bourgeoisie to like boast out anti-Moscow sentiments because, well, they were under occupation of the Austro-Hungarians. So I think the difference in how nationalism is in Belarus and Ukraine also just function it's based on their differences of their inception of their um their nationality where the nationality of the belarusian people really started to take place during the um the the soviet republics where at the creation of the soviet republic whereas with ukraine it was always an inherently reactionary ideology that was created by the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy um to be anti-moscow and to be anti-pro well communist movements um there's that. And then I just wanted to say like a funny story, because uh, I had read a lot about Belarus. So my husband's from Belarus, so I wanted to get to know this country. And there was one story I had read. There were three brothers. And this is around the 20th century where there were three brothers. They all had decided to take on different uh, uh, national groups. So one of them decided that they were going to be Lithuanian. The other one decided they would be Polish and the other one decided they would be Belarusian. Thank you for that, Comrick. Um,
0: We'll take a couple more hands and then we'll have to go back to the presentation.
4: Uh, and also um, regarding um, Belarus, the yeah, the, I believe the saying is that the bourgeoisie called him Europe's last dictator because they call everybody a dictator that doesn't bow down to them. Um, so basically, the thing that I understand about Belarus is um, they are the only former Soviet bloc country that never opened up their markets to Western capital. So everything from what I understand is still state owned in Belarus, comparatively to like a lot of the former Soviet countries that are now like very neoliberal. Um, And I think that that's kind of why they hate Lukashenko because Lukashenko, I don't know if he he really is Marxist Leninist per se, but I think that because he believes in kind of holding um, everything state owned.
0: Thank you, comrade. Comrade, do you have the floor? In some sense,
8: uh, comrade kind of answered my question. It really seems like the people of Belarus were Russian in a lot of sense, ethnically. But maybe there's more complications. And obviously, that does get complicated. But it really seems like a difference from Ukraine, where they try to define themselves as like, oh, we're Ukrainian people. But with Belarus it seems like, well, aren't they more ethnic, like it kind of come from like a Russian history. Is that kind of like a hard thing to answer, I think in this meeting, but it's kind of more of a national question than an ethnicity, but that's all. Thank you, comrade. My question was going to revolve
3: around, as uh, as has already been shared, uh, Belarus uh, has a very unique uh, geography uh, what challenges uh, did that pose for construction during
0: the Soviet era? Thank you for the question. Comrade. do you have a good answer for that one?
1: Yeah, I mean, we kind of went over over it a little bit, you know, uh, I mean, especially with just how how damp and how marshy the land was. I mean, we can certainly look at that as being an obstacle or even just a condition that I think was unique to Belarusia. Now, as far as exactly what, like, obstacles they faced when it came to, like, Soviet, you know, construction or, like, industrialization, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I do know that they were able to, you know, they were able to use their conditions to the best of their abilities, um, you know, considering that they were able to harness a lot of the marshy land for like, hydroelectricity, but, um, uh, I don't have any really any other concrete examples beyond that, um, but yeah, I mean, I think just even looking at that, I mean, that tells us that they knew what they were working with, and they they basically had ways to work around it or even to work with it, um, you know, to make sure that that you know they could industrialize properly in the country.
0: Thank you for that, comrade. Um, comrade, you have the floor. Well, I just wanted to ask a question.
9: If anyone knows who Alexander ne- Nevsky is, I only know knew of him really from a Soviet movie by I think his name is Ein- Eisen Stern. he's the one who made Battleship Potom- Potemkin and other and another thing called like Viva Mexico, but he made a movie about Alexander Nevsky, which actually Star Wars copied like the one uh the one in the snow you know the very fam- famous scene where the bad guys are like walking in the distance towards towards the defenses they straight up like copied a Soviet movie about Alexander Nevsky and it's the same thing but just changed you know the Star Wars characters to be Russians and Belarusians and then on the other side is the Teutonic Knights and the the Germanic you know Teuton order uh, I, I asked that question because I think that a comrade mentioned there was a cathedral that stood in Minsk. I think it's called Andrew Alexander Nevsky Cathedral. So that was my question. Does Alexander Nevsky have any relevance to Belarus?
0: Um, to my knowledge, um, that was around Novgorod, um, and the Teutonic Knights were more kind of around where the Kaliningrad Oblast was. Nowadays, I think that has more to do with Russia, not as much to do with uh, Bielorussia, but I could be incorrect on that.
1: Yeah, I actually had no idea that Belarusia was also called White Russia. Um, when I heard the phrase White Russia, I think like White Russians who are basically opposed to Soviet rule. Um, Where did the name White Russia come from? Is there any
6: relationship between the two things? Yeah, it has nothing to do with ideology. Nothing at all, I know what, what the comrade is saying, I thought the same thing. It has nothing to do with ideology. There's a reason why they would call that part of uh, white Russia. I don't know the reason, but it had nothing to do with
10: ideology, thank you. I believe it's due to the trees, some kind of a tree they have that turns white or something like that. But I, I kind of remember from my readings, but maybe not, but that's what I think
0: um so part of we're not 100 percent sure where white russia comes from um but one of the um ideas about it is the territory used to also be known as ruthenia or white ruthenia so with that um part of the reason um that they may also be called like white russia or Bielorussia is either part of the word or because it was referring to what used to be called white ruthenia even though i don't think that Territory name is really used these days.
11: Uh, how did they get energy from the marsh?
0: Yeah, so um one of the areas of development that they use with the marshes is they basically made some of the biggest areas of hydroelectricity, and they've dam- they dammed up a lot of the marshes, freed up some land, had some lakes and other reservoirs with others, and they use the marshes basically for hydroelectricity. Oh, okay the way the geography was situated it was perfectly for kind of tearing them a bit to basically have a constant stream of um hydroelectric power plants some of which are still operating to this day
12: thank you comrades and then i had a question as well on belarus um so it seems like from the history of belarus it's always kind of been under one empire or another and they didn't have periods of Independence or so called independence, like you, Ukraine did, where they had the brief period um, before the Bolshevik Revolution. Then there, were some, there was some Nazi puppet state set up during World War II. And then, of course, they got their independence after 1991, and nationalism has always festered, and you get these fascistic regimes. It doesn't seem like Belarus has really had that chance, and like it's had a lot more of a closer relationship to Russia. Um, So I'm just wondering, is there a big problem with nationalism um, in Belarus, or um, did this kind of historical trend make it less so in that country than in Ukraine?
13: Okay, so one thing to note, um, in 1991, when they were moving towards the legal dissolution of the USSR, Lukashenko was leader of Belarusia. And he was the only one who voted to preserve the ussr okay and he eventually realized you know he read the writing on the walls that he could not continue with a communist party so he kind of created like a social democrat kind of thing uh there is nationalists in belarus but a lot of them have already left to kiev to fight with the ukrainians so luckily they kind of you know clean themselves out of there um and then remember in 2020 they had like this supposed coup attempt and all this bullcrap against them. That was the nationalists, But obviously, this was funded by Western NGOs and things like this. Nationalism never really took root um, there in the same way that it took place in Ukraine. And another interesting thing is currently Russia and Belarus are a union state, like they have officially status as a union state, the two countries. That's why they never got, you know, big into nationalism post-91. Yeah, I just wanted
8: to mention real quick that uh, the connection to here with the U.S. and that region is, well, a lot of Jewish people, including my um, own family, uh, comes from that region. So um, obviously there were horrible pogroms that were happening in that region. Um, So there is, when we think of the U.S. uh, friends of the Soviet people, really, we have that connection. I, I guess personally, I have that connection as well. I just thought I would bring that up.
2: It was mentioned that uh, Belarus used the marshes to their advantage. Another advantage they used it for was during World War II. There was a there was a um, a counter offensive called Operation Bagration, um, where the where the Red Army actually built makeshift bridges through the swamps, and uh, counter attack the German occupied Minsk. And uh, this was one of the biggest defeats of Nazi Germany. Um, you know, and the, the the big reason why it succeeded was because the Nazis didn't expect them to be able to move all these tanks through the swamps. So I, I just wanted to bring that up.
6: Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor. Yeah, remember when the Nazis marched into the Ukraine, they came into the area of Lov. L v o v. They have a different pronoun, uh, spelling now, and they were greeted with flowers. Remember that there was always a German element in different sections of the. U- you never had that in Belarus. So when they marched into Belarus, they got bullets. Germans they got bullets when they marched into and I when I Riga I mentioned Riga before the capital of Latvia Riga was very different than all the other cities in the Soviet Union it was a Germanic architecture city there was always a history in the Baltic republics of German influence that's not coincidental that they sided with Nazi Germany, both the Ukraine and the Baltic countries. And they're the ones that are hotbeds now of anti-communist, anti-Soviet citizens.
12: Thank you. One of the things that I remembered that I wanted to mention about Belarus is the film that we've actually seen here at the school before, Come and See, is a film about Belarusian partisans uh, fighting against Nazism. So I just wanted to throw that in there since we had seen that here before.
10: Yes, comrade. I want to touch on uh, what uh, Angelo just said too. Uh, You know, the founder of the Nazi party, it wasn't Hitler. It was Alfred Rothenberg. And he was born in Estonia, a Baltic German. Okay. And there's one more thing about Belarus important. Remember the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. That's when... Uh, the Soviet government by of Lenin had to give up a whole bunch of territory that was Belarus and Ukraine. Okay, the German moved in. In Minsk, they installed a government, a puppet government. Okay, that's World War I, right? A puppet government, and their um, <clears throat> the flag is um, white with red stripes. You've seen that flag in the summer 2020, summer 2021. You've seen it all over the news, okay? That was the flag. Then um, Germany was defeated, and then there was this uh, border decided by by the Versailles Conference, and it was the Curzon Line, okay? There was a border between Russia, basically, USSR. uh, I mean, Soviet Russia, yeah, and Poland. Okay, then Poland invades. They go to the attack, and then they move the border. To the east, okay. Not until Stalin, in September '39, he moved the border back to the Curzon Line, and that's where the border is today, okay. Uh, right after um, World War II, it remained until now, and there's nothing that the Polish government can say against that. You know, it, it was, um, you know, it was Stalin' decision at the beginning of World War II and at towards the end of World War II. Okay, and that remains as we speak. That's all, comrades.
0: Um, So for those who have their hands up, please keep your hands up. We will get to you in the next round, but we do need to go back to the presentation. So keep your hands up, we'll get to you next. All right, and continuing on with our discussion, we will be discussing the Kazakh autonomous Soviet socialist region and the Kazakh socialist Soviet Republic.
8: All right, yeah, let's go ahead and go to the next slide and see sort of the region that we're talking about. Oh, here it is. So uh, the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic. When you think of that region of Central Asia, you think of the, the steppes and you think of nomadic people and cultures. So I think in the 1400s, um, we think of like Genghis Khan invading you know, horseback in this steppe region. Um, so that's kind of the basic geography of the of the place. But let's go to the next slide and the Kazakh people under Tsarist Russia. So before the revolution of 1917 and the Kazakh revolutions, this was kind of the state of things where given the weak development of capitalist relations under Tsarist Russia, Kazakhstan was a heavily exploited region where Russian and English capital penetrated for raw materials and minerals. This oppression was hard on the indigenous people of modern Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. These people were of various religions, but mainly they were Muslim. Despite being Russian citizens, the people of these regions were easily oppressed by the religious Czarist monarchy. The Kazakh people, under the feudalistic pseudo-capitalistic society, were considered lower class people, given the worst working conditions in impoverishment. And we can go to the next slide. And so as mentioned before, um, the, the Islamic faith was play a big role in the uh, defining the Kazakh ASSR and uh, the people and the revolution itself. So as mentioned earlier, the people of the region of Kazakhstan were greatly oppressed under Tsarist Russia, and this includes the Muslim faith. The Muslim Communist Party played an important role working with the Reds in Turkestan, the region of Kazakhstan in Central Asia, in helping to defeat the whites the counter-revolutionists, and their counter-revolution attempt. Many military deputies in the region during the Civil War were of the Muslim faith, And by 1918, this region was starting to stabilize and form Soviets, with many Muslims taking leading roles. While many Muslims joined the Bolsheviks in supporting a socialist revolution, there were those that sided with reactionary nationalist Islamic forces that supported the region to become a pan-Turkish or pan-Islamist nation. All right, next slide. So one of those groups was the Alash party and the in um, their connection with the Bolshevik revolution. So um, after the Bolshevik revolution in 1917 and the civil war against the white Russian army that took base in Central Asia, Kazakhstan was established as a separate nation under the nationalist Alash party. The Alish party created a secular government that resembled the bourgeois Duma government of Russia in February 1917. Despite the Allish party's rule of the state of Kazakhstan, the Bolshevik party of Turkestan, supported by the Red Guard of the military garrisons in the region, suppressed the counter-revolution. When the whites were defeated in 1920, the Alish party, which pulled a lot of its support from reactionary Muslim forces in the bourgeois of the region, that represented the economic ties to Tsarist Russia and British imperialism, were also defeated. But many Alash members were given amnesty after their defeat to join the revolutionary government of Ankursus. Some, after given amnesty, tried to undermine the newly formed socialist government. And it didn't go well for them after that, I'll tell you that. Soviet power and the Turkestan SFSR. Before the Kazakh autonomous region was established in 1922, Political delegations that happened during the Civil War in the steppe region of Central Asia in the Turkestan region um, happened. April 30th, 1918, the fifth regional congress of Soviets of Turkestan were held, and over 120 representatives of the local indigenous population, those being of Uzbeks, Kazakhs, and Turkmens and Tajiks, took part in its work. The region was divided because of the contradictions between the peoples who inhabited it. Reactionary religious and bourgeois forms of ideology backed by a foundation of Pan-Turkism or Pan-Islamism endanger the socialist revolution altogether. So the region needed to be partitioned in a way to give autonomy to all the different people and cultures. I think of um, Lenin and um, self-determination, determinism and the national question. But in 1920, the Turkestan commission led by the Bolshevik party adopted a resolution proposing the administrative regrouping of Turkestan in accordance with the ethnographic and economic conditions of this region. It identified three main groups of people that could become the basis of new national units in the TASSR, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, and Turkmen.s The party finally chose the path of creating new Soviet nations and, accordingly, national state autonomies that separated and the Kazakh steppe region and so the formula of the Kazakh ASSR it was the Bolsheviks who were at the origin of the creation of the Kazakh autonomous region in the Soviet national statehood in 1936 but in 1920 the Kazakh ASSR that is the Kazakh autonomous Soviet socialist republic was formed and the constitutional congress of the Kazakh ASSR Soviets was held in Orenburg which became the capital of the autonomous region. You can kind of see uh, things broken up there on the right. On August 26, 1920, the decree of the formation of the Kazakh Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic came into effect. On October 4, 1920, the Constituent Congress of the Kazakh Soviets were finalized. The Congress adopted the Declaration of Workers' Rights of Kazasar, which, by the way, the declaration served as the constitution and secured broad political rights for the workers of Kazakhstan to this day. The region was finally brought into the Soviet Union in 1922 when it was officially formed. That is the Soviet Union. So the Kazakh SSR in the Soviet Union, industrialization of this region skyrocketed and reactionary elements of religious laws were outlawed like polygamy, bride buying, unilateral divorces by only men were all outlawed. Women-oriented schools were established and women were encouraged to participate in public life. The Bolshevik approach was strictly and fundamentally aimed at helping the development of the region in its current ethno-political material conditions. Representatives of indigenous people were appointed to administrative and party posts in the Kazakh ASSR. And the Soviet government decided to translate the alphabet of the Asian peoples of the USSR into Latin writing systems in order to quote unquote, not only to introduce a westernized alphabet in the interest of the future global Soviet country, but also to break cultural and historical ties with the former heritage, primarily of Arabic and Turkish. So this really was kind of creating a national identity here, but the first five-year plan helped transform the steppe region that ran on nomadic or semi-nomadic farms into a completely new society with new industries and new working class and urban culture. Next slide. And now we have the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic. And this is when the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic becomes a state and joins the Soviet Union as a state from the autonomous region in 1936. And there's its flag right there. Industry became the predominant branch of the economy of Kazakhstan. The share of its products in the mid 30s began to prevail all the way to 1939. Kazakhstan took the second place in the production of non-ferrous metals, the third in coal and oil production, and the fifth in electricity generation in the Soviet Union. And all this allowed it to become one of the major arsenals of the Soviet Union during the Great Patriotic War, 1941 to 1945. And almost from scratch, from 1926 to 1940, a completely new industrial district was created in the face of Soviet Kazakhstan. So the KSSR was the last state to leave the USSR in 1991, And so for four days, it was the entire Soviet Union, which after it left as well. And I believe that's it for Kazakhs, Republican, now Kazakhstan.
0: Thank you, comrade. So we'll go to a second round of discussion before we do new members. Um, Comrade, you have not spoken so far this evening. You have the floor.
11: Yeah, I uh, read this interesting book about uh, Belarus, uh, The Last Soviet Republic by Stuart Parker. It's uh, pretty interesting and and informative about it. And I thought
0: everyone should know about it. Thanks. Thank you, comrade, for your comment. Comrade Angelo, did you have anything you wanted to uh, say? Uh, Yeah, on the issue of
6: um, Kazakhstan. Now, I need some clarification of this. Baku, the city of Baku is located in what Republic, former republic.
0: That would be Azerbaijan or Transcaucasia, SSR.
6: Okay. Is that quite a distance? I never visited there when I lived there. Was that quite a distance from Kazakhstan?
0: Um, I would imagine by the crow's flies, if you cross the Caspian Sea, maybe not, but otherwise you'd have to travel around the Caspian Sea to get to it, and that could be a little bit of a distance. Okay,
6: because Baku is normally would be considered part of the, um, you know, Muslim Asiatic area. The Jewish population in Baku is different from the rest of the Jewish population in the rest of Russia. It is Asiatic. The yarmulke is even a different yarmulke. It is not the European yarmulke that we know of. That is also won by the Pope. You ever seen the Pope's yarmulke? Same as a regular Jewish yarmulke. But the ones in Baku are totally different. And um, there's a sizable population, a large population, and some of them have come to Staten Island. I've met
0: them, that's all. Thank you, Comrade Angelo.
7: Hi, so I just wanted to bring up if, if folks remember that maybe it was a year ago, I, I forget exactly when, But uh, Kazakhstan was in the news a lot because there was this mass protest happening. And I know uh, there was a lot of discussion of whether these were, you know, a genuine workers uh, protest or whether it was a color revolution. And having these discussions, I think that a lot of people assumed that the United States was behind it. Now, I'm not too well versed uh, on Kazakhstan like I am with Belarus or Ukraine. But from and you mentioned this in the earlier in the presentation that there was a, a pan-Turkic movement in in Kazakhstan. And this is true when you study like the Uyghurs and and Kazakhstan um, and obviously Turkey, how there's, there's this like reactionary pan-Turkic movement. And I always suspected a little bit that those color revolutions possibly were actually funded by Turkish nationalists or the Turkish government rather than... Um, the United States. I think that the United States was actually very surprised and didn't really have much of a position on it or rather didn't have much of a role in it. Um, but if you did see a lot of those leaders who were killing the police officers and um, just causing absolute riots and mayhem, a lot of them were actually pan-Turkic nationalists.
0: Interesting. Comrade, do you have any insight on that? No, I
8: just thought that was interesting too. But yeah, so thanks for the insight.
0: Fantastic.
5: Yeah, a more mundane question. Apologies, comrades. Does anybody know if a commission of people in Kazakhstan came up with the flag or was it a commission in the Kremlin or like uh, like what is the blue represented? Why did they pick blue as the accent color? Sorry, i was just curious for their flag.
8: That's a good question.
5: Yeah,
6: I'd like to mention on that it looks quite similar to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic flag. If you look at the two flags and you put them together, I wonder what the difference
0: is. So the difference between the two flags is the blue on the Ukrainian flag goes all the way to the bottom as well, whereas with the Cossack flag, the blue stripe has some red below it as well. So it's kind okay. of like the blue stripe is hanging there. The symbolism of it, I am not – I do not know.
3: Uh, well, uh, what I was going to say, why – uh, one of the factors behind supporting the Pozhahideen is to create an island of instability that would create a problem uh, for, uh, for, uh, for the Soviets and also to help uh, spread uh, some of that, help uh, create a problem in other countries like uh, Turkmenistan, uh, I mean, in other uh, regions uh, such as Turkmenistan. Uh, uh, so I would, I would, I would say it was not on. I would say I would disagree with the idea that it was not on. Much. Part of the strategy was centralizing. What I wanted to say was, uh, the blue. I don't know about the Soviet flag, but I know that with the current flag,
10: ninety-seven. Uh,
3: it's uh, going back to uh, their nomadic past. Have uh, a sky. It's a, a, a symbol of peace.
0: Uh, minutes. Sorry. yeah we'll definitely have to look that up for another time
4: um, yeah on Baku um, so Azerbaijan um, is in the Caucasus where kind of Turkey and Armenia are also located and then you have the Caspian Sea and on the other side of the Caspian Sea to your point earlier that's where Central Asia starts the Caspian Sea is what kind of divides it So then Kazakhstan would be a little bit further past Turkmenistan, which is on the other side of the Caspian Sea. And then it would closer to the Russian border because Kazakhstan and Russia are kind of bordered. And that's kind of the distance would be relatively far between Baku and Kazakhstan in that sense. Probably, I, I don't know, taking a shot maybe like two couple thousand miles apart anyways. But yeah, that's kind of just what I wanted to say. And also, I know that Kazakhstan is an ally of Russia, which hence why there would probably have been a color revolution attempts there.
0: Thank you, comrade.
11: Yeah, and, uh, and answer to uh, like guy's uh, comment about uh, uh, Rosenberg, I think don't think he was the founder. I think it was Anton Drexler who was the founder, but uh, Rosenberg was an early member who joined before Hitler.
13: Okay, I just wanted to bring something to everyone's attention. You know, when we look at the history of the world, and its development, we see multiple stages. We see feudalism to capitalism, to eventually socialism, to eventually communism. But all of these countries that were just mentioned, Kazakhstan, uh, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, they basically went like two steps forward with one. you know, and that's something very massive and and just interesting to think about. These people lived in abject poverty for centuries. And you know we we have to consider this. We have to think about it. the same with Armenia. Armenia lived in abject poverty until the era of the Soviet Union and now in the region they are doing quite well economically but we have to credit this to the to the Soviet system and we have to be firm defenders of this Soviet system as it has proven successful in transforming economies that's all
12: and then i had a uh, question as well it seems from the geography of where Kazakhstan is at and it's you know positioned Uh, east of the Caspian Sea, it's south of the Russian SFSR, Um, it's kind of west, northwest of of China, and of course, north of the other Central Asian Soviet Socialist Republics. Kazakhstan, correct me if I'm wrong, had never had any kind of invasion towards it, never had any kind of military intervention to threaten it, like the other parts of the Soviet Union, whether it be the Pacific of russia or of course all the places that were invaded by the germans on the west uh, side or even the threat from afghanistan um below i don't think kazakhstan ever had any battles outside of like the civil war but correct me if i'm wrong
8: i was going to mention the mongols uh like genghis khan uh did invade that region but besides that i'm not too familiar with anything else
0: yeah that was for the same thing and Maybe, besides that, perhaps um expansion by the Russian monarchy in the um sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth centuries might have seen something there, but I wouldn't really know personally,
8: so I just wanted to emphasize how you know, there was a Muslim Communist party in this region as well. And obviously, as historical materialists, we don't look at religion as being what we find our I- ideology and as marxist leninists either. But it was a strategy to side with the Muslim Communist Party. It wasn't like Lenin said, oh, well, we're not, you know, religious, uh, you know, nutbags, we're not going to side with them. No, he had to side with them. And it was very um, helpful to do that um, during the, I just wanted to mention that, but then also how you really see the, um, of what Stalin talks about uh, about a national identity um national determinism determinism or um and so we see that with the development of Kazakh and Kazakhstan and to this day they can thank the Soviet Union even though it's not part of it for what the gains have for the the country of Kazakhstan uh
2: yeah so this is um you know after the um counter-revolution of 1991 but uh, in Afghanistan, as, you know, a lot of people know that, you know, the fall of the socialist Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban started coming to power, and they they mostly were, uh, were oppressive towards uh, the Hazara people, but they were also oppressive towards the, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, and the Turkmen people. Um, so... At, These, even after uh, they no longer were uh, socialist republics, they did hold out resistance against the Taliban, but uh, there was a lot of nationalism between the three ethnic groups that caused them to not unite against the Taliban. This was further exasperated when the US tried getting into the Caspian Sea, where there's the big oil deposits they, uh, you know, they basically pulled them even further away from Russia, who was leading the anti-Taliban resistance at the time. And uh, so I, I just wanted to say that this uh, the Central Asian uh, republics were very instrumental during uh, the rise of the Taliban. They could have stopped the Taliban from rising, but because of the destabilization under uh, Gorbachev and uh, Yeltsin, they basically facilitated the rise of the Taliban. All right. Thank
12: you, comrade.
0: Seeing no one else at the moment, um, we will go on in the presentation. Um, our next part will be the Transcaucasian Soviet Federative Socialist Federative Soviet Republic. Excuse me. Um, and that will be given by Comrade. You have the floor.
14: Thanks. Appreciate it. So the Transcaucasian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic is what I'll be going over. The Caucasus were originally a part of the Russian Empire. It is separated from modern Russia by the Caucasus Mountains. As the Russian Empire began to be dissolved, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan declared their independence. Armenians, Azerbaijanis, and Georgians had been in opposition for many years with race riots breaking out in larger cities where ethnic groups converged. To combat this, Lenin proposed that the three Soviet republics be united, and it was finalized March 12, 1922. The Transcaucasian SFSR became a founding member of the USSR on December 30, 1922. After the 1936 Constitution was signed, The three regions were individually elevated to republics of the USSR. Next slide, please. And then you can see on a map here that we have Russia, uh, the Soviet Socialist Republic at the top, Georgia and SSR right underneath it. uh, And then Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan to the left and right underneath Georgia. You can see Kazakh just to the right of that. And then in between is a uh, Soviet uh, Socialist Autonomous uh, Republic. It's called Nakachkoven or something like that. Sorry for the mispronunciation. Uh, And then you can see those four flags, Transcaucasian, Socialist Federative Republic, and then when they were split after 1936. Next slide, please. So the revolutionary leaders in each of these three areas uh, in Georgia was Joseph Stalin. In Azerbaijan was Mashadi Azim Bekogli Azizbek, and in Armenia, Stepan Shamian. During the communist intervention in 1918, the British seized Baku, Azerbaijan, and Azizbek and Shamian were shot and killed. A monument was erected in their memory, and it became a tradition for newlyweds to leave a piece of their wedding bouquet at the monument. And there's a picture of that monument there on the right. And then some excerpts from Soviet but not Russian on each of these three regions. Professor David Lange from the University of London was the leading authority on Georgia. He wrote in his book, A Century of Russian Impact on Georgia. If we compare the position of Georgia and adjoining Soviet republics with that of Turkey and Persia, the remarkable improvements in the health and general standard of living look even more striking. Employment of women in qualified work is an extremely common phenomenon in Georgia. Industrial workers and peasants are by large better off than in most places in European Russia. The sharp contrast between the dynamic economic and industrial system and the excellent cultural facilities of Georgia on the one hand And on the other, the chronic instability of some modern countries of the Middle East or the deplorable backwardness and stagnation of others leaves little room for denying the positive side of Russia's impact on Georgia. Georgia is at present in the time of this writing in 1985, present well-insured against drifting back into the vicious circle of ignorance, poverty, and disease, and is able to stand on her own feet, economically and industrially, in this highly competitive modern age. Next slide, please. When Brezhnev died suddenly, his successor Andropov amazed the West by bringing an Azerbaijani, Gaider Ali Riza Ogli Aliyev into the political bureau, where he was named the first deputy premier of the Soviet Union. The amazement stems from the fact that Western scholars, journalists, and politicians had apparently hypnotized themselves into believing that the Muslim peoples in the USSR are treated like blacks in the US. Aliyev is entirely a product of Soviet times. Born in 1923, the son of a worker, he graduated in history from the University of Azerbaijan, itself founded after the revolution. Aliyev's duties have not, however, been associated with ethnic matters. His first job under Andropov was to turn around the lagging Soviet railroad industry. At this writing in 1985, he is in charge of consumer goods industries, which the Cherenko administration has pledged to boost. He has also been sent to Syria to discuss the future of the Near East and Soviet arms aid and there's a picture of Aliyev on the right. One admires the Armenians for their ability to wrest a living from the soil, so unbelievably rocky and arid. They say stone is our bread. It makes Maine look like prime farmland, but they do rest a living. Today, the Armenians live well, extremely well. Little more than one-seventh of Armenia is arable land, by far the lowest proportion in any Soviet Republic. It is the smallest of them to begin with, a little larger than Vermont. What is arable can only be if irrigated, as Armenia has no rain to speak of. Fortunately, Armenia has an immense mountain lake, Sivan, which irrigates 250,000 acres, an extraordinary engineering feat for its day, Six dams, each also producing hydropower, one below the other, were built between 1930 and 1962. But before the last went into service, it was realized that the 17 irrigation canals were drawing so much water that the lake would be destroyed. So a tunnel was drilled 30 miles through hard rock to bring it to the water of a river separated from it by mountains nearly 10,000 feet high this remarkable effort one of the world's earliest great environmental protection projects took only six years and there's a picture of that tunnel going through the mountain on the right and that's the end and we'll go back to discussion thank you
0: all
15: right thank you comrade and once again if you have any questions please raise your hand more so that we don't have to we don't necessarily have to focus on current like Russia's georgian relations just maybe just their, their history in general that's all um have you been to georgia comrade angelo and
0: what is your opinions on it if you have
6: yeah first of all there were 15 republics and uh when i was there i basically was around five or six and i did not go to georgia unfortunately stalin is very revered in Georgia. They just put a statue of him recently in Georgia. It's funny because the Communist Party in Georgia is uh, unified around Stalin. They call themselves the Unified Communist Party. There's no. Most of the other republics have two or three parties that are communist, but in Georgia it's just one. the The whole Soviet Union today, Russia today, is closer than it ever was since 19, I would say 1997, 98, um, closer to a communist solution. The war in Ukraine has brought the communists into the forefront, believe it or not. So everybody should be watching the next elections that they're going to have in the different republics. And uh, remember, in Ukraine, the party has been outlawed. Remember that. So that's all I could say. Thank you.
0: Thank you, comrade. Uh, Angela.
11: What was that, uh, in the last slide, what was that, uh, that environmental measure that they mentioned in Armenia?
0: Um, so what they mentioned was there is a high lake in Armenia because it's a landlocked country high up in the mountains. They use that lake both for hydropower and for irrigation. They did realize before the last hydro station went online that at the rate of usage, the lake would have been dried up by the time um, it was done. So they basically drilled a tunnel 30 miles through rock to a river to divert it to that lake. And that is the Arpa Sivan tunnel.
11: Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add, I was listening to a podcast a while ago on Georgia, and they were saying how not only are they saying that Stalin's very highly revered, but they were saying conservatives in Georgia love Stalin because, He's seen as this like national strong man. You know, he represents strong Georgia. Uh, and they were saying like the leftists love Stalin because of obviously the Soviet Union. But he, they were saying that the only people in Georgia that don't like Stalin are like liberals. So I thought that was pretty funny <laughs> and interesting.
0: Yep. I I can agree with that.
9: Question style's comment. I'm not sure if it's still true, but I remember seeing something a while back. He doesn't have the Visser Vianovich name. I don't know how to pronounce Stalin's Georgian name, but I believe Stalin's either like grandson or great grandson was the general secretary of their party for some time.
6: Yes, that is that is true. He also ran for office, uh, and by one of the communist
0: parties. That's true. Interesting. I did not know that.
11: Yeah, just to answer a comment, Darren, I think I'm pretty sure Stalin's Georgian name was like. Yosef Viseronovic Chukasvili.
6: Yep, that was it. The last name.
12: Thank you so much, comrade.
0: Yeah, so I had a bit of a more modern question that I must admit I'm not too knowledgeable on. Um, so I know there was always that tension in between the different peoples in the caucus, but kind of really how did it get to the point with the current Azerbaijani-Armenian relations. Um, Could someone with a little more knowledge on that perhaps give some light? Thank you.
13: Okay, so to touch on this, we have to explore the current state of Azerbaijan. The current president, Aliyev, is the son of the Aliyev that was mentioned on there, but he is the one who has disgraced the legacy of the USSR the most. Um, He leads the only Shia country and the war a shia muslim country in the world that has an embassy with israel in their capital baku um and they're very close with turkey this inflamed the issues you know in 89 they had these ethnic riots and everything like this that were going on between the two and when they got independence azerbaijan took a stance that pro israel pro turkey pro west while azerbaijan took a stand of pro russia so this is like kind of where the conflict is now but an interesting thing to note is that the region that is contested they have a pipeline and this pipeline runs directly from azerbaijan to turkey and in turn to england so 30 percent of the uk's crude oil comes from azerbaijan and because of this you know, it's 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 been a big economic boom for them, which none of the other countries in the caucus have. So they're capable of having, you know, a strong military force against Armenia. And this, they are the aggressor. Definitely. That's all.
11: When did they split up and why did they split the trans caucuses uh, federation into just Georgia, Armenian, Aberbaijan?
0: So with the writing of the 1936 Constitution of the USSR, or what some people call the Stalinist constitution. Um, this region was actually, um, each was split into its individual socialist republics um, from Transcaucasia, um, mostly around at the time in 1917, the early 1920s. That was a very, kind of with the same thing of why Belarus and Ukraine and Russia all joined together as a union. They were, with the breakup, Pretty weak on their own, so for at least Lenin had mentioned, why don't you guys join together as one union for strength? That way,
14: it was also to. There were a lot of race riots going on between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, in particular, and Lenin wanted to create unity between the two, and so he joined the Caucasus together in 1936 uh, when the constitution was done. Stalin didn't see that it was necessary to go on with that same idea and split them up into their own uh, areas based on the people that were primarily living there.
12: All right. Thank you, comrade. So and then I had one last question before we go to the section on Ukraine. Um, This one's on Georgia. So I don't know a whole lot about what went on between Russia and Georgia in the 2000s it seems like there was a conflict that kind of almost serves as a prelude to Ukraine and is similar. But if somebody could give a little bit of context on it, it's probably worth the whole class. Um, but just a little bit of an explanation of what was going on there, that'd be helpful. So the conflict between
2: Russia and Georgia was a year after the Rose Revolution, which was another color revolution backed by uh, you know Western uh, NGOs, uh, U.S. State Department, where uh this uh, leader, Saakashvili replaced uh, the pro-Russian uh, Shevardnadze. you know, they they claimed he was uh, you know, they claimed that he was uh, like a pro like a Soviet era dictator. That's what they referred to him as. And uh, basically the conflict was over uh, the the Republic just below Georgia. Um, Abjara, I think it's called. Um, and then there's one, I think, called Abkhazia. I, I, I don't remember the names exactly, but basically uh, Georgia wanted these two territories back, even though they seceded from Georgia after the dissolution of the USSR. Um, so after that, this, uh, Georgia attacked Russia, who was backing um, Abjara or Adjara and Abkhazia.
12: All right. Thank you, comrade. That answered my question.
10: Yeah, you know what happened in 2008, uh, the Georgia war, right, uh, between Russia and Georgia? Yeah, it was like the Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And those two places were like the Donbass in Ukraine. Lots of Russian nationals and stuff, and they felt very close to Russia. And they were, you know, oppressed by the Georgian government. So Russia intervened. It's kind of like exactly what happened, you know, this last year in 22, okay. And also the fact that um, I think in 2007 or something like that, but the Georgians were really close of asking to become NATO members, you know, and Putin made a speech, you know, in Munich in 2007 at the security conference where he said, no, this is a speech that was, began everything, you know, about the NATO expansion, said, no, 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 cannot. This is going to lead to war. Sure enough, the next year, you know, he went to the offensive in Georgia, and then in twenty two, offensive against Ukraine. Thanks God.
12: All right. Thank you, comrade.
10: It was
0: kind of the same thing. I would have also added that possibly the earlier conflicts in Chechnya might have uh, involved some kind of uh, color revolution or at least inflaming of nationalist and other tensions but that was it
12: all right thank you comrade
0: all right so our last section for the evening will be on the history of the ukrainian uh soviet socialist republic so ukraine had never really been like a state or a nation um the land that is now ukraine has been split many times between different other nations and forces um, be it the polish lithuanian commonwealth the mongol invasion the russian empire um, even sometimes the hungarians and the crimean um i believe it was the uh, i didn't call it the sultanate but um there was actually a kingdom on crimea a muslim kingdom that did occupy some parts of that um generally though for the people there they were slavs they were very similar to the their Russian counterparts. Um, Part of the split between them is a slight religious part, especially in Western um, Ukraine, which is more Roman Catholic than um, Orthodox. And that has part to do with how that land's been under control of places like Hungary, Poland, and other places. Um, Generally, for the most part, though, there was autonomy um, for these people and also within the Russian Empire, some autonomy, but this was pretty much taken away um, when Tsarist Katharina took the crown. Um, Basically, if you've ever read any of Russian history, she was the one that spilt a ton of Russian blood for Crimea, and also mostly expanded the borders of the Russian Empire to its um, pre-Great World War I borders around that time, and also Started taking a campaign of heavy Russification that kind of went on until the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, so, with the abdication of the Tsar, there were immediately two separate Ukrainian republics that were declared. You had the Ukrainian People's Republic, so called in Kiev, and then there was the Ukrainian Soviet uh, Republic in Kharkov, which is more Eastern Ukraine. So the Ukrainian Soviet Republic was founded December 24th, 25th, 1917. It was it had many different names as either the Republic of Soviets of Workers, Soldiers, Peasants, Deputies, or sometimes the Ukrainian People's Republics of the Soviets. But for namesake, I suppose they went with the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. Um, pretty much though, with the with the abdication of the Tsar and the October Revolution. A civil war started in the area between the nationalists in Kiev, who basically had the support of the occupying Germans that moved in with the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, and other Central Power forces, and the um, communists in the east part in the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. Um, this first um, Ukrainian Soviet Republic was dissolved in 1918 after the signing of the Brest, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the last session in the city of Tanganrog in eastern Ukraine. Um, so for the most at around after that part, um, there was the nationalist Ukraine that was kind of a puppet of the Germans. It was especially in Kiev. That was a center of a lot of horrific pogroms. Um, It is what's important to note, though, that when the October Revolution occurred in then Petrograd, it had been both eastern Ukraine and the soldiers and Soviets of Kiev that had voted to support the revolution. Uh, Most of those soldiers and Soviets did end up going into eastern Ukraine when the civil conflict took out. Um, There has been some debate on whether that was a correct move at the time, but that's another topic um so in 1917 with the support of the central powers there was a takeover by the nationalist central rada government and this was the nationalist ukrainian government um however with the withdrawal of germans at the end of the great war a new thing a new government called the directory took power this was under the leadership of a former Tsar's general skorpadsky um the rada basically attacked the peasants who had split up landlord lands um so when the germans withdrew though the conflict the communists kind of came back in um and they assisted in defeating the nationalists in the civil war uh the communists returned to power in february 1919 with the liberation of kharkov which if you see the map of soviet ukraine here Kharkov would be kind of like the city right over here which is currently near the border lines of the conflicts today um, there was a formation of a second Soviet Ukrainian government, um, but when the Russian general civil war broke out and the intervention by the foreign powers, uh, this was kind of dissolved to fight against the whites and the nationalists from 1919 to, 19, to 1920. Um, with the finding of the Treaty of Riga, um, there the third Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which had been formed in December 21st, 1919, ended up getting most of that territory and so if anyone excuse me is not unfamiliar in history the treaty of Riga was basically the treaty between poland and the ussr on the divisions of land and this is what created the belarusian soviet socialist republic that and if you'll notice ukraine uh crimea was actually part of the russian federative soviet socialist republic at that time um but anyone that talks about oh Ukraine was never free till 1991 not true Ukraine was free was its own independent nation and in fact the Ukraine Soviet Socialist Republic was one of the founding members of the USSR on December 30th 1992. So as kind of noted earlier Western Ukraine had been ruled by Poland until the Great Patriotic War interesting research we came across was in those areas where poland was ruling which is basically the modern city of lviv and some of the other areas um any mention of the soviet union was suppressed any mention of ukrainians in the soviet union were also disregarded and they were told to look to the west for the ones in poland um not sure if there was any um like forcing of polish or other languages on them but they were definitely told like hey all the modern history is towards the west over here don't look towards those people in the east um some accomplishments of the ukrainian ssr um the first machine and tractor station this was kind of a centrally set up place where co-op farms could get tractors and farm machinery um they could also get them repaired for free or any other maintenance that was needed the first of these was formed around odessa in 1930 this was the first of its kind and ended up being copied throughout the ussr for how much it was enjoyed um with the outbreak of the great patriotic war most of poland was occupied by the nazis um and especially that part that had been under polish rule which had been briefly taken back into the ussr with Stalin advancing into um, Poland when the Germans invaded there. Um, A lot of the collaborative units ended up coming out of that region. Um, But Poland was finally liberated in 1944 with the Red Army coming in. On the right, you can see a picture of 1950s Kiev. So you'll kind of notice you've got some streets there, but down the middle you've got this big wide boulevard where people can walk. There's lots of trees um, it's very clean looking. You've got monument of linen right here, people leaving flowers, people just hanging out, chilling on a beautiful day. Kind of a definitely probably wouldn't find that in Kiev nowadays. <laughs> um, so as mentioned earlier, a couple sources we had for this presentation tonight was both um, William Mandel's Soviet but not Russian. He wrote this in about 1985 or so before the dissolution of the USSR and the most Modern version of you can find has been put out by, I believe it's a uh, Winnipeg University Press and also the book by Anna Louise Strong of Peoples of the USSR. And that is the end of the Ukrainian section. If you have any questions, comments, please raise your hands real quick. Um, Comrade Angelo, did you have something you want to say on this? Most important thing was left out.
6: When the Germans invaded, of all the countries they invaded, only one country, only one people welcomed the Germans with flowers on the ground as they marched in. Did you know that? And that was the people of Lviv in the Western Ukraine. They were always pro-German. The architecture in Lviv is very different than the architecture in Kiev. And you could see the Germanic very carefully. Also Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, Germanic architecture, not modern Russian, nothing like that. Not even old Russia. So you could see the difference that goes way back. Um, Bandera, you didn't mention that. The most important thing. The Bandera rights and the nationalist Ukrainians were allies of the Nazis. Not just the Germans, they were allies of the Nazis. That's important for people to understand. Um, so that goes way back. The first thing they did was get rid of the statue because they hate socialism. The Bandarites detested. So these people have been fascists from the very beginning. The idea that the Banderites were not fascists, but allied because they were anti-Russian is nonsense. They were fascists, real life fascists. They're symbols of the Banderites, Stefan Bandera and the present government? Is the Nazi cross changed in a different way? If you look at their flags, the flag of the present Ukrainian government first saw the light of day when the Nazis set up a Ukrainian state under their jurisdiction of the Germans.
12: That's it. Thank you. And one thing I just want to say uh, real quick, and then I'll give it to comrade Christian, is uh, I remember going to uh, when I was in New York, we went to the Aero Park um, mansion in upstate New York, kind of. And they actually had a book there that had a whole bunch of pictures from Kiev and from around Odessa um, back during the time of the USSR. I think this was a thing from the 60s. And it was just so beautiful. Everybody was actually living a great life. You had Kiev uh, covered in, in linen statues and hammers and sickles and none of this fascist Uh, symbolism. Um, It looked closer to a place like uh, Moscow than it did to Berlin, Um, and it was just really amazing to see that. And you look at the history of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, um, and besides the Nazi invasion there, um, it was mostly peaceful, and it was a great life. Um, Of course, the Holodomor is one of those myths that's spread by the West um, that literally comes from Joseph Goebbels' uh, propaganda wing. Um, and it's amazing how many people, you know, feed into that. But all throughout that lifetime of the SSR, with the exception of the uh, Nazi invasion and occupation, they had a great life there. And I think that the Ukrainian um, Soviet Socialist Republic is a great thing to point to when we uh, answer the question well, what do we want Ukraine to look like? Um, it did better under the Soviet Union than it ever was under any kind of independence, because it seemed like every time it would get some sort of independence or become a puppet state, nationalism would fester, and people would get slaughtered um, in 1917, 1941, and 2014. So I just wanted to add that in there. And one thing I just want to say real quick, and then I'll give it to comrades. Uh, I remember going to, uh, when I was in New York, we went to the Arrow Park um, mansion, in upstate New York, kind of. And they actually had a book there that had a whole bunch of pictures from Kiev and from around Odessa um, back during the time of the USSR. I think this was a thing from the 60s. And it was just so beautiful. Everybody was actually living a great life. You had Kiev uh, covered in in linen statues and hammers and sickles and none of this fascist uh, symbolism. Um, It looked closer to a place like Uh, Moscow than it did to Berlin. Um, And it was just really amazing to see that. And you look at the history of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, um, and besides the Nazi invasion there, um, it was mostly peaceful and it was a great life. Um, Of course, the Holodomor is one of those myths that's spread by the West um, that literally comes from Joseph Goebbels' uh, propaganda wing. Um, And it's amazing how many people, you know, feed into that but all throughout that lifetime of the SSR with the exception of the uh, Nazi invasion and occupation, they had a great life there. And I think that the Ukrainian um, Soviet Socialist Republic is a great thing to point to when we uh, answer the question, well, what do we want Ukraine to look like? Um, It did better under the Soviet Union than it ever was under any kind of independence because it seemed like every time it would get some sort of independence or become a puppet state, nationalism would fester, and people would get slaughtered um, in 1917, 1941, and 2014. So I just wanted to add that in there.
10: Yes, comrade. So you mentioned the, the Treaty of Riga. Okay. So uh, remember the Treaty of Brest litov first, we talked about it earlier, where Germany conquered most of Belarus and most of Ukraine. Germany defeated okay and the uh, the Soviet, uh, the Soviet U- not Soviet Union yet but Soviet Russia, Belarus and Soviet Ukraine get back to the Khson line okay We talked about this all right But then we got Poland attacking so, uh, Belarus and Ukraine okay And it ends with the Treaty of Riga that Nick was talking about. And Ukraine and Belarus lost a whole bunch of land okay, that was taken back by Stalin okay, in 1939. So very important. Uh, the Kherson line, which is today's borders, versus Treaty of Riga, two different concepts. Okay? Stalin made it right. Okay, second, um, we need to talk about um, uh, the Donetsk Soviet Republic of, uh, that happened at the same time. At the Bolshevik Revolution, right, Donetsk, you know Donbas, same thing as today, right? In uh, Bakhmut, what they call it Bakhmut, but we call it Artemovsk. Okay, the name is uh, after the founder of the Donetsk People Republic in 1917, Comrade Artem Artemovsk, Bakhmut. Okay, that's where the fighting is taking place right now. So really important. when the first Soviet Ukrainian Republic, right at the time of the October Revolution. Thank you, comrades.
2: Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know if um, if everyone has been, uh, you know, paying attention to the news, but um, for a while, the fascist Kiev government has been, um, you know, talking about removing the hammer and sickle from the motherhood or the Motherland Calls Monument in Kiev. Uh, well, recently, I think this week, they started uh, removing the, the hammer and sickle and replacing it with that, the fascist symbol, the tri- trizub or trizub, however you pronounce it. Uh, basically, you know, so this uh, monument that was built to honor the heroes of World War II against Nazi Germany. Is now being defaced, you know, having its history removed and replaced with, you know, Nazi symbolism. So, just wanted to point that
12: out to everyone. Thank you, comrade. And I wonder what version of the trident it is, because I know that there's one that was traditionally used by Ukraine, and then there's the right sector one with the uh, dagger in the uh, trident itself. One thing that I just also wanted to mention real quick about Ukraine, and it's been said in other classes before, is that comrades have to understand that historically, um, this was a corridor that was used uh, time and time again to invade Russia and invade the USSR. It happened with uh, Napoleon and the French in 1812. It happened, I believe, with Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It happened with the German Empire and World War I. It happened with Nazi Germany and World War II, um, and now it's happening with the NATO, U.S. Uchro-Nazi bloc um, in the, the present age. And so you can see why a country like Russia is always quick to um, act and defend themselves when they see this Western expansion towards them. Um, the closest it ever got was with the Great Patriotic War And they fought with everything that they had to throw off the yoke of German Nazism, and they won. And now, unfortunately, they're facing the Fourth Reich. Um, So I just wanted to put that in there.
0: Yeah, just one quick comment. I know the nationalists in Ukraine love to talk about, well, um, all these people that um, collaborate with the germans they gave the first ukrainian independent state or ukraine was never independent until 1991 bull ukraine got its first independent state in 1917 and the whole reason that it the belarusian soviet socialist republic the russian soviet federative socialist republic and transcaucasia were for each individual equal members that formed the ussr when it founded. So anyone who will ever spout off that Ukraine was never independent until the 90s, no, no. They may want to downplay all they want, but they should all thank Lenin for having a state.
3: Uh, Yeah, I was just wanting to
2: recommend a a book. Um, I haven't had time to go all the way through it, but it's a two-volume book, The History of the Civil War in the USSR. It's edited by like Molotov, Stalin, Gorky. All of those guys, but you know, all together. But it goes through the entire Civil War. Um, I think this one was done by this Laka Press, L A I K A. Dot Press. So I've I've liked what I've been able to read so far, but they have a bunch of sections about like Transcaucasia, Ukraine, and all that stuff that people might find interesting.
12: Thank you for that, comrade.
13: Just real quick. Um... In the Russian language, Ukraine actually means borderlands. You know, just wanted to point that out to kind of further touch on what Cameron had brought up. It always has been a borderland for countries trying to invade Russia. And, you know, one thing with that's interesting to note as well, the animosity between the Poles and Ukrainians goes back for centuries. Because during Napoleon's march to Moscow, he had 600,000 Polish Legion troops with him and they were amongst the worst. And in terms of massacring civilians and things like this, and this was Napoleon time. So, you know, we still see these ethnic tensions between Poles and Ukrainians. And, you know, it's it's crazy how it still continues like this in 2023. That's all.
12: Thank you, comrade. And another thing that I thought of that I even wanted to add is just to go even further back to show that historical context. And somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that Um, Basically, one of the furthest realms that the Roman Empire got during its time in terms of going out and towards Europe um, and northern Asia was uh, Scythia, which I believe was Crimea at the time. So even all the way back to then, you have examples of these Western massive empires using Ukraine to go towards that direction. So...
0: Um, just really going off of comrade comment, um, I forgot where I saw it, but somewhere on social media, I saw a post of, I forget if it was in Lviv or in Poland, but it was graffiti on a wall in a Polish that said, we'll forgive the Katrian massacre for Lviv. So as you said, there was always that weird um, tension between the Lithuanians and the Poles, and in fact, uh, or between the Ukrainians and the uh, Polish. Um, but in fact, one of the more pro-Soviet places in Lithuania happens to be the minority of the Polish people that are in Lithuania, oddly enough.
7: Hi, so I just wanted to bring up that. Um, so Ukraine, and what is now Ukraine, those those territorial borders actually had three different occupiers. Well, so obviously they were under the Russian Empire, they were under the Polish-Lithuanian Empire, and they were also under the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. And why I think this is important is because when we look at Ukraine and the Ukrainian identity in that land, it was never always united. And that's why the Ukrainian language is actually it's spoken very differently from one side of the country to the other. It is not, it hasn't been standardized. It is not a uniform language. Ukrainians who try to speak Ukrainian from Kharkiv will speak a different Ukrainian from the people from Lviv um, because the people in the East were ethnic Russians and they spoke Russian. And for a long time, they always considered themselves Russian. And so in fact, the communist party or the Bolshevik party in Ukraine, who did the, the October revolution in Kiev the day after the Moscow one, um, They were all from Donbass. They were all from Donetsk, like the vast majority of them, but they were also considered Russian. And so I find it interesting when you speak to the Ukrainian nationalists, they talk about Soviet occupation. Uh, They say that, you know, the Russians, they forced this, this this the Soviet system on us. And then at the same time, they'll say. Donbass belongs to Ukraine. So, which is it? Because most of the Communist Party of, of Ukraine was actually from Donbass. So, either they're Ukrainian or they're Russian. What is it? It's, it's, they don't have a, a defined answer. It's very convenient.
0: Fantastic. Very good points, Gummer. So,
3: when it comes to Poland, uh, from what I know, in the aftermath of uh, the uh, Treaty and uh, the uh, changing. Uh, uh, territories Sometimes, something that uh, I noticed that um I don't know if it's hit nowadays uh, I know there was a time in history where uh, I would come across a lot a lot of like recirculated you know law and justice propaganda here in the United States uh, but what I know is that after the uh, uh, end of the war, they created a, a system of, of pogroms and ethnic. Uh, Ninety seconds. Seasons, uh, for a lot of the uh, Slavic peoples, uh, other uh, broader. Uh, so, uh, my my question is, uh, uh, how tense and to what degree were Russians or other peoples uh, in this uh, period?
0: The Nazis, uh, was um well, during that earlier period, I probably could not give you an exact number, but uh, two million Russians died in the Great Patriotic War, more than any others, and germ and Hitler had taken um inspiration from what we had done in this country with native populations, decided. I'm going to kind of do that with uh, those people over there to the east of me. So um, you can imagine that the intent behind it was not that great. And um, if you want further research, um, I'm blanking on the exact names offhand, but nowadays you can see some of these ukro Nazis wearing um, Totenkopf patches, or sometimes they've got Patches of like two of those explosive, like hand grenade explosives crossed together. Um, Those were very specific Nazi units that committed horrible atrocities and basically would just indiscriminately kill villages, burn entire towns down, rape all the kids and women, and then kill them as well. Um, And then some of the earlier days of the war, I had actually been seeing what looks like a shield with a gold lion and gold crown looking things, three of them on a blue background. And that was actually the crest of the SS Galicia division, which was also one of those collaborative units from the Nazis. So couldn't exactly give a full number on the earlier pogroms. 90 seconds. You'd have to imagine it was pretty bad.
15: Uh, Yes. Uh, I just want to throw this out there. It was a movie I saw on YouTube. I'm just going to post it the wikipedia page of it I, I um in any case uh it's a really it's a polish movie mind you but it really shows and it was, it's it's only about seven years old but it really shows the viciousness of the uh ukrainian insurgent army of the time the like the really the bandanderites of the time now now it i don't think it's necessarily pro-soviet uh, unfortunately but it kind of shows you all the different factions of the time and one woman's like trying to navigate her way through all that um but it isn't like hard anti-soviet it just it just they're just like another player in the game kind of thing but but the the movie really emphasizes uh the viciousness of the ukrainians especially at the end of the movie it's like holy holy moly uh Volinia, i believe it's called um and it is it was on youtube this was about a year ago so i mean you can try to look for it but I, and it did have English subtitles, so I you don't know, if, if anyone's interested in seeing something... Uh, Not just uh, yeah, if anyone's interested in seeing that, uh, uh, have at it. Anywho, that, that's all I gotta say.
0: Thank you, comrade. I saw on social media somewhere a scrolling on a wall near the um, Polish-Ukrainian border in Polish of, we'll forgive the Katerian massacre for Lvov. So, no, there's definitely a history between those two there. We will begin our wrap up now as it is nearly time. So really quickly, as mentioned earlier, this was a presentation of the US Friends of the Soviet people. One of our current projects right now is the Film Archive Project. So at around the end of 2008, various comrades had regained possession of a cache of films that used to be the film library of the Berkeley California branch of the Soviet American Friendship Society this collection consists of about 300 films on a variety of topics they are in russian with english subtitles and represent the soviet union speaking for itself in its own voice um so the us friends of the soviet people we had agreed to take these films possessions of the films and we would in 2009 and we would raise the funds and perform the work to digitize the collection and to distribute its contents both via recorded media like dvds and on the internet um so we have actually begun releasing some of these videos on the youtube channel of the party of Communists usa um i believe also the u.s friends of the soviet people has a couple videos as well um we do need donations to complete this work since it is not cheap to digitize these films most of these are 35 millimeter cans of film and they're only getting older with age and we really want to get this work out because this really is history right here that probably nowhere else in the world if they never get out these will probably get lost to time and film so if you are interested in donating and to helping us get these out you can donate at the website of the u.s friends of the soviet people down below at u.s friends of the soviet donations all right comrade angelo go ahead you have something to say i want to mention that uh, i was involved
6: in getting these films personally and you can't get them anywhere else they're all gone so they even it's by moscow films company um, it has chemicals in the films that help it to dissolve and be destroyed after a certain amount of time. It has to be temperature controlled. It can't be too cold or too hot. So we need money to get these on DVDs. Um, and I've been doing it going, I found a place, and I've been going there, getting them to DVDs. But little by little, um, and time is running out. Um, These films are excellent. You should see the ones we have already on uh, on the YouTube channel. So we need people to donate money on this, please. Um, 10, 15, 20, $25, something
5: to help us uh,
6: pay for this. Thank you.
0: Thank
5: you, Comrade Angelo. Thank you for watching this full length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, Visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.